When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Looking to expand or move your company? Ohio has the talent you need to scale for growth. Ohio's central location, reliable infrastructure, and top-ranked business climate are here to help you succeed. Get to business. Visit successinohio.com today. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. In a previous episode, we asked, how do you write a hit song? And it's a pretty darn interesting conversation about whether there's a certain template or key ingredients you need when you're trying to cook up a hit song. Spoiler alert, there is. <laughs> there are some common elements that hit writers turn to again and again. But this week, we're going even deeper. And if we answer this one, Clint, we deserve a Grammy. We deserve a Nobel Prize. We deserve some sort of graduate degree in metaphysics. Okay. Welcome to the age-old question. I'm Rich Price. And I'm Clint Bierman. This show is sort of like car talk meets behind the music. Ooh, Clint, I like that. Each episode deals with another question in music fandom. The kind of questions that Clint and I have been debating since we were in college. So today, with the help of some smart people, we're going to come up with the answer. Okay, Clint, what's today's question? Today's question is, where does a song come from? That's the age-old question. First of all, Happy New Year, everybody. Man, it's good to be back. I hope 2022 is a big year for this podcast. Come on. And for all of you listening. And we're starting 2022 with maybe the hardest, most abstract question so far. Where does a song come from? We're talking about how is a song born? One minute it's not there, the next minute it's there. But let's start with what inspired this discussion. Right. The incredible eight-hour documentary by Peter Jackson about the Beatles. Yep. If you haven't seen it, it's called Get Back, and we highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. We loved it. Yeah, it was, it was just a fascinating 
fly on the wall experience. You literally feel like you're in the studio with them. It's an incredible look at how these iconic songs come into existence, both in terms of songwriting, but also how they plotted through to find the arrangements that we all know, right? Right, yeah. It's, it's one thing to have the kernel of a song, and it's another thing to see it become the song that you know. And it doesn't come into the world fully formed. Rarely. That's part of it. Right. So an article in the Washington Post pulled together some reactions from various musicians that have watched it. Jeff Tweedy from Wilco said this, I don't think of it like any other viewing experience I've ever had in my life. It's really kind of intense and bizarre. I spontaneously burst into tears a few times just being able to see the exact moment a take I've listened to a thousand times was put down. Incredible. Incredible. It's like the version. There's another quote in that article from Ben Bridwell, who's the front man of Band of Horses. He says, There's a vulnerability in writing in front of other people. That extreme vulnerability when you're showing your soul. The fact that they can do it among one another in real time, there must be just so much love between them. I love that idea. In this discussion when we talk about where does a song come from, I think the word vulnerability is a really important one. Big time. And in the case of Get Back, not only was it just the four of them, but there were camera people. There was Yoko sitting right there. There all was the time. George Martin. There was Glenn Johns. You know, like they're all Mal sitting Evans. there. Just right there. Yeah. And, oh man, the highlight had to be Get Back, right? You're seeing it from the very beginning of that one. I want to take us on a little journey okay. before we get to the documentary. And as we talked about, the documentary actually shows the lads working on these songs. And we're in the delivery room as these songs are being born, right? But there are some great stories about songs prior to January 69. A lot of the songs came from constantly being around each other. And John and Paul would write every day. And especially in the early days, it was really eyeball to eyeball, as Paul has said. I would say to people that out of, I think it's about 300 songs that John and I wrote together, we never had a dry session. We'd always come in and we never went away from the session going, ah, couldn't get it today. We always finished a song, which is pretty remarkable. That's part of the answer that where does a song come from? It's, it's picking up a guitar or sitting down at the piano and just doing it, Yeah, right? It's, and you and I have talked a lot about yeah, this. Yeah, it's, it's as much inspiration as it is work. So they were doing it, and sometimes in a very workmanlike fashion. And they were a sounding board for one another's ideas. For example, Paul writes the song Eleanor Rigby, right? He's thinking back to some of the elderly women that he'd observed as a child. And he's writing it, and he's coming up with this image of a vicar writing the words to a sermon that no one will hear. Writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. As he's writing the song, he calls the vicar Father McCartney. He's thinking, ah, it doesn't feel quite right. I originally had Father McCartney, but when I came to finish it up with John, I brought it to John, and we were playing it around. And I said, uh, I, don't want to, I don't want to call this Father McCartney because it's like my dad. It just is a bit confusing. And he said, no, it's fine. So I said, no, I don't like it. So I said, okay, let's change it. So we got the phone book. We just went right down to sort of McCartney, 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 and looked for something, Mc something. And the next one was like Mackenzie. I said, that's better. <laughs> that's, so, that's so good. So sometimes a phone book can be the inspiration. Father Mackenzie, wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave. No one was saved. All alone. Okay, let's keep going. 
So by August 66, burned out from the heavy touring and the fact that the audiences were screaming so loudly that they couldn't hear themselves anymore, they decided they were done touring, which left them able to focus on making music in the studio. So they became not just songwriters, but studio innovators. But because they weren't touring, they were also writing separately, but they were still influencing each other. John would write Strawberry Fields Forever, reminiscing about his childhood in Liverpool. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to Strawberry Fields. And Paul would be like, oh, that's, that's quite a good idea. And he'd write Penny Lane also about stroll down memory lane. Penny Lane is, is a place in Liverpool that um, was kind of central when I was growing up because it literally, it, it's a bus depot. We used to call it a bus depot. <clears throat> when John and I were writing songs later, we often used to just hark back to places that we both remembered, you know. And I came up with this idea for Penny Lane. There'd been a barber shop, which is still there actually, where you know those haircut photos where you can choose what haircut you want so you know that got the line there's a barber showing photographs uh, of every head he's had the pleasure to know Penny Lane there is a barber showing photographs of every head he's had the pleasure to know so that's him and then on the other corner Penny Lane is uh, a bank so I made up this story about the banker and the motor car and the children laughing at him on the corner is a banker with a motor car the little children laughing at him and then just down the road, there is a fire station. So we made a story about the bloke with the clean machine. I tied it all together. And then uh, the last verse is uh, behind the shelter in the middle of the roundabout, which is the Penny Lane thing itself. Behind the shelter in the middle of the They're just memories, really, you know, pulled together and uh, given a kind of slightly poetic treatment. And uh, it's really just memories of my Liverpool childhood. They were just memories, really. <laughs> it's easy for you to say, Paul. <laughs> Great so that's, song. So ever. that's another place that songs come from, right? Being able to tap into this collage of memories and feelings. Right. So in 1967, they make Sgt. Pepper's. It was round about when we'd given up touring, and it was the Sgt. Pepper album that we were about to make. And I was coming back from America, um, just on a, a trip, just for fun kind of thing, uh, a holiday. And I was with a friend of mine, our, our road manager called Mal, Mal Evans. Um, he was a big bear of a guy, you know, and a great guy to sort of travel with, he was a fun fellow. And I just started getting this idea um, that it'd be great for the band to kind of take on like alter egos so that we wouldn't have to record as the Beatles always. It was getting a little bit restrictive, like, you know, oh, here's a Paul vocal, here's a John vocal, here's Ringo's track, here's George's track. He's on a plane with Mal, the roadie, who we actually see in action quite a bit. And, and you love Mal. You, love. you just love that guy. But here's another clip where... Paul talks about how it was actually Mal who gave him the idea of Sgt. Pepper's. I was with our roadie, Mal. He said, we passed the salt and pepper. And he said, salt and pepper. I said, what? He said, salt and pepper. And I thought he said, Sgt. Pepper. I said, that's great. That's a Mondegreen. That's amazing. 
that's another thing. An idea for a lyric, not just a lyric, but the whole concept behind arguably the greatest album of all time <laughs> came from mishearing something. Had he heard Salt and Pepper properly, we never get Sgt. Pepper. I tell you, that, that happens so much with Peter Day and I. Hmm. It happens all the time. Where you'll say something or no, he'll say something. he'll say something I can't hear very well. <laughs> and I'm always like, did you say? He's like, no, but... And then we write it down. That I... That has happened so many times. And what's it called? A mondegreen. A mondegreen. That's when you hear something differently. Like, excuse me while I kiss this guy. Right. Right. That's or a there's a bathroom on the right. Right. So Sgt. Pepper comes out in May of 67, and a lot happens in the coming months. In August of 67, their manager, Brian Epstein, dies of a drug overdose. And without the guiding hand of Brian Epstein in late 67 the band starts feeling this void, right? And Paul suggests an experiment that will ultimately become the Magical Mystery Tour. It's sort of a disorganized, failed experiment in a lot of ways. The concept was that they would just make a film that was unscripted. They'd get a whole bunch of people on a bus and they'd travel around for a couple weeks having an adventure. Despite the lack of focus, the album itself produces some great moments. Songs like, I Am The Walrus. I am here as you are here. bit of King Lear at the end of that too. Uh, that was live radio coming from the BBC though they never knew it. When I was mixing the record I just had a radio in the room that was tuned to some BBC channel all the time and we did about I don't know half a dozen mixes and I just used whatever was coming through at the time. I never knew it was King Lear until years later somebody told me because I could hardly make out what he was saying. But uh, I just sort of it was it was interesting to mix the whole thing with a live radio coming through it. Slave, thou hast slain me. Villain, take my purse. If ever thou wilt thrive, bury my body. Songs like Fool on the Hill, Baby, You're Rich Man, oh. and the title track. We're getting sidetracked, which is easy to do with Beatles. But by now, these experiments are all part of the journey of soul searching. They're trying different things. And in 68, they go to India to study transcendental meditation with the Maharishi Yogi. While they're in India, they're back together again, and they have their instruments, and so they're writing a ton of songs. When they come back, they record those songs for what would ultimately be known as the White Album. Songs like Rocky Raccoon. Now the doctor came in, stinking of gin, and proceeded to lie on the table. He said, Rocky, you met your match. And Rocky said, Doc, it's only a scratch. And I'll be better, I'll be better, Doc, as soon as I am able. I was riding on a little moped to see my cousin Betty 
and it was a moonlit night. I said, wow, look at that moon. When I look back, the bicycle is now here, and there's no way to get it back up, so I'm hitting that pavement. I smashed my lip and everything, and bleeding away. I go, hey, Bert, don't worry, but I've had an accident. Ah! And she said, oh my God, bring the doctor. I think it was around Christmas time. Well, he was pissed. <laughs> I think you need a couple of stitches. I'm going, okay, have you got anaesthetic? Uh, no, I've got a needle and thread. And he's trying to thread the needle. Right. But he can't, he can't see it. Yeah. He's seeing a few needles, you know. Yeah. So Betty takes it off him and she threads it. So he was the doctor's <laughs> thinking of him. I never forgot him. Back in the USSR. I'm back in the USSR. And oh bloody, oh blooda. Here's Paul on the Howard Stern Show talking about the origin of that song. We used to go to the clubs mm -hmm. late at night. And there was a friend of mine who I befriended in the clubs. He was an African guy. He was called Jimmy Scott. And, you know, we would jive together just, hey, man, you know what's going on? Yeah. And he used to say, oh bloody, oh blooda, life goes on, brah. <laughs> yeah, man, yeah, yeah, man. You know, and I just loved this. And I would go, oh bloody, Jimmy, you know. So uh, I wrote the song in... Lyrics first or music first? Together. Together. Yeah, which is kind of often how it happens. You know, you just got some chords and you, you, you make a song up. And one thing I always love about the intro there, that piano dun, in, dun, dun, intro. Dun, dun. So fast, too. It's like... Well, what happened was me, George, and Ringo were kind of slaving over this. Right. And John wasn't there yet. John, he was late. Yes. Again. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, he's busy. <laughs> Come on. God knows what. So we're not getting anywhere with it. Chinga, 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 chinga. It was thinking, oh, God, this isn't, it's not happening. And John comes in to the studio. He says, what are you doing? What, what's happening? What are we what, working what, what on? What are we working on? I say, oh, bloody. He goes, oh, oh, that one. He goes over to the piano. He goes, all right, what can you do? He goes, din, 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 din. Just like that. And we all fall in behind him and go, yes. So this turn of phrase that Paul hears inspires a song. Again, it's just being a sponge open to these inputs, right? Of just sometimes it's just hearing a phrase. Yeah. Ringo had a ton of these expressions, right? He would just say things wrongly. Right. He would just say the wrong thing. Like, now Ringo, I hear you were manhandled at the Embassy Ball. Is this right? Not really. Someone just cut a bit of my hair. Well, what can you say? What can you say? Oh, yeah, tomorrow never knows. Write it down. <laughs> Hard at night. Uh, eight days a week. Right. Like they, they, that's an amazing, and that's one of my favorite things about the Beatles channel on Sirius XM. 24-8. I love right. that. Right. Anyway. Another song from the White Album is Dear Prudence. So John was, while they were in India, was nominated to help another student of the Maharishi who had, in his words, gone a bit barmy, <laughs> meditating for three straight weeks. Here's Paul telling Rick Rubin about it on the great series McCartney 321. There was a girl there who was called Prudence Farrow. And she was Mia Farrow's sister. The word got out that she was in her chalet and wouldn't come out. So 
we all sort of wanted to go over. And John was playing and singing this to her. Dear Prudence, won't you come out and play? Right. No real mystery there. It's just he's just saying what everyone's thinking. Yeah. So one of my favorite Beatles songs on this album is I Will. Who knows how long I've loved you? You know I love you still. Will I wait a lonely lifetime? You can hear in this early demo of I Will, it's just Paul and a stream of consciousness riffing. He's got the kernel of the idea, but he's just allowing his brain to just flow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, baby. White Album comes out in November 68. Although it's a productive time, they basically feel like that they are coming into the studio as the backing band for a John song, or they're backing up Paul on his song. So in December, they're talking about what could we do to get back (laughs) to to feeling like a band again? And they hatch this idea that they'll do a live concert, but they'll come together and they'll film themselves being a band again and writing the songs and at the end of the time they'll perform the songs live with no overdubs with right. no overdubs. that's the whole that's the whole concept. thing yeah right because for the last 18 months it's all been overdubs right. basically all right so that project ultimately gets shelved but then it's put out a year later when the beatles announced that they were done and that film was called let it be and there was an album put out to accompany the film's release But there were dozens of hours of footage and audio that sat untouched for 50 years. And Paul and Ringo and Yoko and Olivia Harrison get Peter Jackson to go through it, restore it, and share it with the world. And that is this eight-hour documentary. But as we've talked about, you see these songs emerging. We see George sharing a new song that he's been working on called Something. He's stuck on a line. Attracts me like... And John says, just put a word in his filler. What could it be, Paul? Something in the way she moves. Hmm? What attracted me at all? Just say whatever comes into your head each time. Attracts me like a cauliflower until you get the word. Yeah, yeah but I've been through this one like for about six months. Six months and nothing's gone. I love it. He says months, <laughs> months, months. Attracts me like a pomegranate. We see that that's John's process, right? Which is don't get stuck. Just push through, put a filler in. Right. We see Paul sitting at the piano with Mal Evans standing next to him, and he's working on The Long and Winding Road. Done it all the pleasure from the many ways I've tried. 
I've had lots of pleasure, but said better, you know. Yeah. I've had many pleasure. I've had much, much fun. Yeah. You left me waiting here a long, long time ago. You like standing better? Well, uh, yeah, put weight in there than standing here. So it would be. We see John's song, Don't Let Me Down, which they've been working on, playing again and again. It's, it's not gelling quite right. Don't let me down. But then Billy Preston shows up. He sits down and immediately provides the shape that had been missing. And John says, It's great. You're giving us a lift, Bill. We've been doing this for days. <laughs> we see George helping Ringo develop a song he's been working on called Octopus's that was, Garden. That was really cool. After the two times, the second time. We see Paul pull Get Back out of thin air. Paul strumming his Hofner bass like a guitar, and he's just stream of conscious riffing. remains is a lot from that initial stream of consciousness yes like a lot of those lyrics are like he tweaks them but they're right there from the very beginning what's amazing is as you say we're we the beatles are sort of catching up with us like we know where they're gonna go right they don't know. they don't know yet yeah it's incredible Side note on Get Back, Ringo wasn't playing that drum beat, right? For the first, the dun, 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 right. right? For the first, like, and then there was a moment where he was playing it, but we didn't see that didn't moment see him where come up they with that. talked about that moment. And that's, for me, that song, that drum beat is the coolest part because it's, such it's an not unusual play. It's yeah. not what you play. But what was so cool is seeing who brought what idea. Billy Preston shows up. We 
so one of my favorite comments, Clint, that I've read about this was a tweet from Morgan Enos. He's a writer for Grammy.com. He writes that in Get Back, we see with our own eyes that Paul is open to the primal vibrations of the universe, pulling songs from the ether. And that's a big part of it, right? It's just being open. We use the word vulnerability earlier, but just being open. And this is it for me because all the great songwriters have said this exact same thing. You work on the craft, right? There is craft to it. Yes. You, you, you work for years on how to craft a verse, chorus, bridge, right? Those are the sections of a song. And the more you work, the better you get at that thing. Yes. But when it comes down to writing a great song, they all say that they're just a conduit to this thing that just plops out of the ether into their body and they have they have enough skill at this craft at this point to be able to put it into a song form. Right. But they, they all say the exact same thing. Tom Petty says, I don't want to know where it comes from because I don't want it to stop. But the, they, they don't want to dig too deeply into what is actually happening because they don't want to monkey with it in any way. You're so right. Here's a clip of John describing the aim of transcendental meditation. It could be describing the approach to songwriting, accessing a non-judgmental subconscious part of the creative mind. You know, you just sort of sit there and you let your mind go, whatever it's going, doesn't matter what you're thinking about, just let it go. You don't will it or use your willpower. Then the aim, as opposed to sitting and thinking or anything, mm. is to reach a point in the sense where you have no thoughts, mm. is it? Right. So the word inspiration comes from the Greek word God-breathed or divinely breathed into. The Oxford English Dictionary defines inspiration as a breathing in or infusion of some idea, purpose into the mind, the suggestion, the awakening, or creation of some feeling or impulse, especially of the exalted kind. So this idea of like inspiration that something is breathed into you. Wow. Picasso described the non-judgmental subconscious brain like this. Every child is an artist. The problem is how to remain an artist when he grows up. In other words, we're really good at accessing the freedom of the brain as a child. But logic and reason and self-doubt, these things get in the way. Filters. Filters that everything has to pass through. I've been thinking a lot about this idea of where a song comes from, Clint. In part because you and I have been writing a ton of songs lately. Yeah. And it was for a project. We can't talk much about the project, but we would get together and just work days, right? Where the yeah. goal of writing at least a song every day. Mm -hmm. And we did. Yeah. And it's exactly as you describe it, that, that it's about putting in the work, but then getting out of your way. And, and, and simply putting your hands on the instrument, right? That's part of it. It's like getting in there and fiddling around, right? Like right. just allowing yourself to be completely free of plan yes. and just playing the instrument. So another reason I've been thinking about it, where a song comes from, is because I listened to Malcolm Gladwell's new audiobook called Miracle and Wonder, Conversations with Paul Simon. It's a fascinating profile of Paul Simon's creative process based on something like 50 hours of conversations that Gladwell had with Paul Simon over a couple of years. If you're a fan of Paul Simon, I highly recommend it. But I also recommend it if you're just interested in the creative process. The title of the book, 
Miracle and Wonder. Obviously, he's pulled from The Boy in the Bubble. These are the days of miracle and wonder. This is a long distance call. But it also is a perfect way to describe this mystery around the birth of a song, right? Paul Simon talks about the mystery throughout the book and the feeling that he gets when he's able to tap into that creative magic. He talks about it's a chemical high. Uh-huh. It's a chemical high when you're able to access that mystery. How do you get there? How do you make yourself feel that chemical high that you feel when you make something that you like? We recently experienced that Yes, in one of these writing sessions that we're talking about. Yes. I left that place buzzing. Yes. Not like any other buzzing I've ever really experienced. It was like I was soaring. It was incredible. Visceral experience. In another chapter, Clint, he talks about writing The Boxer. And one line in particular, a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises. I've always loved that line. Yeah. I, I never, I like singing it. I like the way it, it sounds. And I've wondered, like, what did he mean? Pocket full of mumbles, such are promises. I think it kind of came out of um, pocket full of marbles. And maybe I said, well, there's no use to say marbles, so... I'll say, oh, mumbles. Oh, that's better, you know? Pocket full of mumbles. That's a nice, you know, nothing. Such are promises. All lies and jest. Still a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. Mm-hmm. That's the really good line of the maybe the whole song. Mumbles. That's better. I don't know what it means, but it's better. Yeah. That's so, awesome. So like Paul McCartney arriving at Sgt. Pepper from Salt and Pepper, it's like sometimes it's the, what's it called? Mondegreen. The Mondegreen. Yeah. And that's, you know, part of the great joy of it is because it's a mystery. You don't know why that jumped into your head. But it's not important. The thing about it is, is you say, ah, oh, yeah, I could use that. That's a good thing. I love that mystery too. I, it is everything to me personally. I don't know where they come from. I looked at this systematically for a number of reasons. Where do songs come from? They can come from a lyric. They can come from a musical idea. Or they can come from a rhythmic idea. Mm. Right? Those are where... Like if you're going to start a song, you're going to start from one of those places. Whether it's a melody that just sort of creeps into your head. Or a lyric idea that creeps in your head. Or starting a track. Meaning sitting at the computer. I'm going to write a song. I like this feel. This drum sound. Bring that in and start writing from there. So tempo, mood, all those things. And that stuff can be very scientific, very planned out, very orchestrated. Right. Being like, okay, I'm going to write a song at 114 beats per minute. In a minor key. In a minor key, and it's going to be this feel. Right. Rich, have you ever written a song entirely without an instrument? Yes. Like lyrics, melody, and then you go back and figure it out and be like, what chord? And then you try to keep it in the same key so that you don't forget it. You're like, what? what, key? Where, what? You find the chord. The chord. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Do you have any examples? Yeah. There's a song from my very first solo record called Night Opens. The record is called Night Opens. The song is Night Opens. I wrote it on a, a plane. Yeah. Melody, lyrics, everything was written 35,000 feet. And it plopped into your head. And then you wrote it on your phone. It was, was that, pre. It was yeah. pre. I wrote it on a on a literally on a napkin. napkin. Don't even say it. You did. Yeah, <laughs> so that's classic. why it's only two verses. <laughs> so good. You ran out of space. I ran out of space. The night opens. 
shatterings out Backfires on the avenue This red light on bleaker This tongue lost the speaker It's hard getting over you Sometimes a song will come really quickly mm-hmm. and then other times I have to wrestle it to the ground. Of course. I started looking at some of my favorite songwriters yep. and their process. Yeah. And John Mayer has a good video on YouTube where he talks about songwriting as it's like matching socks. Hmm. One sock is the music. One sock is the lyric and not just the lyric, but the lyric and the concept. Music is very easy to come up with. Words are harder to come up with. And coming up with words and music that match each other are very, very difficult. So the song, the, for me, songwriting is I can always play music and I can always write lyrics. But to find the stuff that goes together, then you got a song. Goodbye, cold. Does the music usually come first? Usually, but there's. I I wrote a song last year entirely in my car, 100% start to finish, with no instrument, and then went inside and recorded it. Lyric and melody. Yep, lyric and melody. So that's another thing. A song can come from a concept. Mondegreen stimulates concept, right? right. You hear something differently. Salt you and pepper. He- salt and pepper, or you hear a word or a phrase. And all of a sudden, your brain starts going down that path. And that path would never have been found any other way than mishearing something. Mm. Like, there's no way Sergeant Pepper falls into your head, right? Right. It, it has to. There's, there's a nugget that is given to you. And then that sends you down this conceptual path. Like, I overheard somebody at Mad River Glen saying, you know, you're going to make a great ghost someday. I was like, oh, my God. I just typed it into my phone. And then... That whole concept became a song that Pete Day and I wrote. A lot of the, the stuff from my personal songwriting comes from overhearing something or talking to somebody, having them say a line, and then I just, I mean, you do probably do too. It's like notes, endless notes in the phone. So this is a theme that keeps coming up, right? This idea of being vulnerable, being open mm-hmm. to the suggestion of creativity or mm-hmm. something that if you're closed-minded or closed off to Whatever that thing is, you miss it. You miss it. And boy, they come every minute of every day. I'm obsessive about it currently, where anytime I hear somebody say anything even remotely interesting, I write it down on my phone right? because that's the seed. That's the beginning of my next song. What you just said is a perfect segue to my next thought. Okay. 
It comes from Brian Eno. We've talked about him on the show before. He's a musician, composer, record producer, maybe best known for his work with U2. U2. He talks about a framework for songwriting that I'd never heard of before, but I think it's really powerful. He says, about the time I first started making records, I was also starting to become aware of a new sort of organizing principle in music. Like many people, I'd assumed that music was created in the way that you imagine symphony composers making music, which is to have a complete idea in their head of every detail. And it's sort of the architect principle, designing the building in all its details and then have it constructed. So then he goes on to say in the mid 60s, about this time he started making music, he saw a shift in songwriting and composition from the architect to the gardener where the architect stands for someone who carries a full picture of the work before it's made, to the gardener who plants the seed and waits to see exactly what's gonna come up. Hmm. So Brian Eno explains, for me, this was really a new paradigm of composing, changing the idea of the songwriter from somebody who stood at the top of the process and dictated precisely how it was carried out to somebody who stood at the bottom of the process who carefully planted well-selected seeds to hopefully watch them turn into something. That's amazing. Another articulation of this idea of being open. And Let's talk about collaboration, too, because collaborative songwriting, where does a song come from, is being open to somebody else's idea of that same concept, yes. which is a, is, a, is a total skill that not everybody can do. It is a skill. Like you can sit across the table from a great songwriter who, for whatever reason, can't access that collaborative mojo. Mojo. Right. Yeah. Then there's no, I don't know how else to describe it, but like being open to the universe, but then being open to the idea your buddy has and just doing the work. Because, like I said before, doing the work gives you a platform to be ready to accept the great song. Because every time you sit and write a song, you're, when you finish, you're like, what just happened? How did that? I always think, like, I always listen back on, in my car on my way home at, from a studio when I've recorded something. I'm like, how did this happen? How right. did this, where, why, how? So where does the song come from? Comes from being vulnerable, being open to inspiration and listening being open meaning like you're you're ready to accept it but also like engaging with the world around you enough to like hear what other people are saying so that you can mishear it or so you can grab a nugget like really being diligent about writing down what is around you i that's my biggest way to do it and being prepared to put in the work yep Oh, and then there's also surrounding yourself with a group of trusted confidants that you can bounce things off of. And that's another thing that we see in Get Back. And it's not just the members of the, the four Beatles. It's when Billy Preston gets there, that was what was missing. Sure, yeah. And that took them across the finish line. Yeah. Or even George Martin, I mean, it doesn't do it as much in Get Back. He wasn't as involved in, yeah. this, in these sessions. But like... Being open to that feedback and that, like, arranging. Maybe John Lennon said it best, though. Here's David Bowie at a concert in 1983, so three years after John was killed, remembering what John had said about where a song comes from. I asked John one day, how do you write your songs? He said, 
It's easy. You just say what you mean. You put a backbeat to it. You just say what you mean, and then you put a backbeat to it. Isn't that the truth, though? Man. When he says it like that, it's like <laughs> anybody could do it. That's incredible. I think the best songs come from personal experience. If we looked at the massive list of great songs, I bet 80 to 90% would be our personal personal experience songs. The ones that stand the test of time. Here's another Paul McCartney interview where he's talking about how songwriting allows you to work through what's happening beneath the surface. You work your things out. And songs, one of the great things about writing songs, it's almost like a therapy. You can go in kind of angry or sad, and you put all of that in the song, and it kind of makes the song better because it's real feelings in it. And when you finish the song, you feel a lot better. You know, it's just a place where you can work things out, you know, deep feelings, you know. But again, he's talking about being open and being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I keep coming back to this this idea of being vulnerable. And yeah. I think you don't have to be Paul McCartney mm-hmm. to be in touch with the primal vibrations of the universe. Right. Like anyone who wants to write a song or a poem or paint a painting needs to just do it. Just do it. Really. But the more you do it, the better your craft becomes. And then it, you're able to harness that that openness that's what makes great songwriters is someone who has put in the time to understand how the process works right mixed with this openness to the inspiration of the universe that comes through you it's a great blessing in my life that i've been able to do this and work through it feelings in my own heart and head but also to experience that magic that i experience when you and i sit down to write a song or when yeah. I sit down and write a song with someone else like that is a as Paul Simon said it's a chemical reaction that it leaves you with a high yeah. and a spiritual thing too yes. like that magical feeling is as spiritual a feeling as I think the human experience can have let's go write a song alright I mean I think at some point we should write a song for this podcast that's a great idea show you firsthand what happens in the process what do you wait 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 do we, do, i mean we said it was a lofty task to to do it but i think we did it i think i, I think, think we, i think we got to I some think, real truths yeah i think it was real we hope you had fun as much fun as we did and we hope you'll join us next time when we answer another age old question Follow us on Instagram at The Age Old Question. Facebook, The Age Old Question. We hope this conversation has sparked some ideas and thoughts of your own. Let us know in the comments. But let's be kind, people. Yeah. No hating. No hating. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. (laughs) Yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? (laughs) 
That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.